house is fertile Myrtle. Minus or plus? I don't know. It's not seasoned yet. Take some of these. No. There it is. That little pink plus sign is so unholy. That ain't no edge sketch. This is one doodle that can't be undid, Holmes Gillett. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Hello, welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name, of course, is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, cohort, and comrade, Julio. Julio, we are here for episode 41. How are you doing today? We've, we've, we're past the 40s. We are. We mercifully got past that Judd Apatow disaster. Yes, and now we're into uh, a different kind of disaster. The disaster of life. <laughs> a beautiful disaster. Yes. Uh, we are here today to visit the movie Men Good, Women Bad by Diablo Cody, uh, also known as Juno. Um, now, you know, every once in a while we have a special guest here, a friend of the podcast. Whatever the situation, we found it fitting for this particular one. We have our friend Reed here today. Reed, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, this is one of uh, Reed's favorite movies. That's why we decided to, to have it. It was it was a complete surprise. I showed up, and uh, this has made my night. <laughs> <laughs> so this was uh, a mystery podcast, as I teased for several episodes now with Reed. I kind of always wanted to have him on the podcast here, and a movie that he has such strong opinions about, passionate opinions, much like myself. Um, he knew coming in, Julio, you came in completely cold. In I have no like I said uh, before. We were setting up. I. My only guess, and I was trying not to think about it, was uh, Gone with the Wind. That's the only thing what I could the think. Hell, of. would make you think it would be Gone with the Wind? Because that was the only movie that I knew. I mean, we were doing a high-rated movie, mm -hmm. so I was like, the only high-rated movie that would be kind of like a chore, like because you said that Reed could like walk out when he <laughs> saw the movie that we were doing. So I was like, okay, there has to be something that would be like we'll elicit a strong reaction, and I knew it couldn't be American Hustle because we're saving that one for Chaz. So, oh God, I was like. Gone with the Wind, maybe I would walk out of Gone with the Wind. Just I haven't seen it, but it's three hours long. So. Yeah, see, it's longer than that. Three and a half yeah. intermission. It's a good movie. Yeah, have but but I'll be like, fuck this, dude. We need to like, have, like this needs to happen on a Saturday. We have to have the overture, and we have to have the the orchestra there to play the intermission. So. Right. Um, which is a real thing they did, by the way. Like did you know that when it was in the theater, they had like a real orchestra. It doesn't surprise me. It was like yeah, back the in the, the good old days. Yeah. Anyway, Juno. Ellen Page, Michael Sarah, the one and onlys, directed <laughs> by Jason Reitman, who would go on to make vastly superior films, at least one. 
as always, you know, this uh, was 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't for the life of me quite understand why. It's one of the highest rated movies that we've done uh, yeah. so far. This is right next to Modern Times. <laughs> yes. So, and uh, Glow. Chaplin. Glow. Ellen Page. Glow, yeah. I, I think it is the Modern Times of the 2000s. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, they had audio, so they had the that advantage. Uh, I have a few positive reviews uh, there were so many, Alex, and I knew there's so many that would make both of you just grind your teeth, uh, try to pick the best ones. Uh, Tom Long for Detroit News says, Juno is the best movie of the year. It's the best screenplay of the year, and it features the best actors of the year working with the best acting ensemble of the year. It's Tom Long going all in. Just real quick, before we go any further, it needs to be established. This was the same year that fucking There Will Be Blood came out. <laughs> no Country for Old Men. <laughs> Atonement. Spider-Man 3. All, all, all better movies than <laughs> Juno. Uh, Ali Gray from theshiznit.co.uk. Disqualified. A bouncing baby that seems destined to grow into a classic. Uh, Jean... I hope she lost her job <laughs> over that. Gene Laurison from San Diego Metropolitan. Jason Reitman directs Juno with just the light touch it needs. And Paige is surrounded by terrific supporting performances all around. This could be the sleeper hit of the year. They were right about it was. one thing there. Uh, Brian Martyr from Hollywood.com says, Even if you knew nothing of Juno going in, it's easy to pick up on the fact that the, vo the movie's voice isn't like any you've heard in a while. It's totally fresh in every sense of the word. But is that a good thing? Do people really talk that way? We'll discuss. Jeff Bayer from the Scorecard Review says, Right from the beginning, when Juno is chugging away on Sunny D, we want to see what she will say and do next, I guess. I guess in the general sense of you're watching a, <laughs> a movie, movie, so <laughs> you're hoping you want it to continue since you've paid to see it. Uh, Prairie Miller from Newsblaze says, Excels in the smart, stylishly rude, tangy teen dialogue, courtesy of screenwriter and former stripper and phone sex operator Diablo Cody boasting career choices that have assisted her in perfecting talking dirty on screen into a science, I guess. What the fuck, Freddie Miller? <laughs> That's just like bringing out Diablo Cody's past. Yeah. Uh, Stella Papa Michael from BBC.com says, Reitman has delivered a bundle of joy. Boo. And finally, Sean P. Means from Salt Lake Tribune says, Cody's writing recalls early Quentin Tarantino, Dripping with pop culture references from Beverly Hills 90210 to Thundercats, but with a welcome sentimental streak. How do you think Quentin Tarantino feels about this? Sean Penn said that? <laughs> Sean means. <laughs> I can't, like, before we bleed over into us, our, our genuine opinions about this, that's asinine comparing that. There's no scene in this that's anywhere near, like, a scene of dialogue in Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction. Anyway. Tarantino, we'll like, at his worst, is... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Juno begins in the season of autumn. Uh, this movie's broken down by seasons as opposed to just straight out telling you what act we're in or if we're in the prologue, epilogue, what have you. Uh, Juno, uh, our main character, Juno McGuff, played by Ellen Page, and Polly Bleeker, played by the incomparable Michael Sarah. Uh, they did the deed, and now she is pregnant because of this. She is a 16 year old. Uh, did they say what town they live in at any point? Um, no, I almost asked you at some point. I was like, "What is? Where is this?" I think where she was driving towards the end of the movie, and like the the very really obviously desolate. shot in Canada. Yes, <laughs> well, but, she's Canadian, right? Do you know uh, Ellen Page? 
I say Juno Page. I call her Juno all the time in real life. So, but yeah, like he said, clearly uh, shot in Canada for obviously budgetary reasons, but climately it, it's all over the place. Like you can't figure out. Uh, they tell you by season, but you know it's it looks like it's all in winter. Like even in summer, they're wearing long sleeves and shit. Um, she's pregnant, and we get this animated beginning, which in some cases could lead to some fun thinking you might have other animated scenes down the line. Like, um, there, there are movies that, uh, cool world, for example, that, <laughs> who frame Roger rabbit. Exactly. That interweaves this, but we just get this really pretentious opening, uh, animation. Now, I think pretentious is the key word to defining this movie. Uh, cause it's like a it's hipster's a wet dream. Like the music, the animated beginning, and then the hamburger telephone, the hamburger telephone. But even before you get to the telephone, you have Rain Wilson. Is that his name? Dwight. Dwight. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Putting in just like his like, what, three minutes, five minutes worth into the movie. But that's enough to set the tone for what's to come. Not even. He was he was probably in and out in an hour. Yeah. How much <laughs> do you think he got paid for that? Or was this a favor? Oh, he, he was like, it's my pleasure to recite these lines. <laughs> Please allow me. Uh, yeah, the opening animation bit, it really, it looks good in the moment, but it leads to nothing greater. And just, again, the word pretentious kind of defines it. It does seem just like, oh, it'd be cool if we did the opening credits like this. And that was the extent of the, the thought. thought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Juno's pregnant. She takes, what is it, three or four pregnancy tests? Yeah. And she tells her best friend, uh, Leah, played by Olivia Thurlby of Judd Dredd fame, who immediately and kind of like every other character is reacting to this in this film thinks it's you know kind of goofy and fun and not really at all striking in that you know this is a human life that's being entered into the equation right it's like we're going we're having an adventure (laughs) this will be juno on the case of the pregnant belly And then she goes and tells the would-be father, Polly, Michael, Sarah, and he has about a split second of reaction before it's just back to normal life for him. I feel bad there for Michael, Sarah. There is that Sarah. brief moment of, like, human reflection of, oh, shit. And then he proceeds to just completely drop any responsibility or connection to it for he the rest of the it film. It's, it's fitting that she tells him while a rug is there. Because he just sweeps it all under it and then takes off back to the normal. He, he even comments on how cool the, the rug looks. He's like, oh, that's a cool tiger. And what the fuck was the purpose of that? Was it was she trying to recreate where they had sex? I think so. I think that's because, you know, she's cool like that. That's She is not like most girls. You will be reminded again and again that this girl is cool. What, it, was it at this point yet? Have we gotten? Because, Reed, you she, she has She has a pipe. There. She, she does she, have... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Have we gotten one of the establishing shots yet where she's walking against the green at this point? Uh no, because they haven't got they haven't gone to school yet. Right, she hasn't gone to school yet. It's she's just uh she has a pipe though, which which already sets her apart. Uh but Michael said I was saying I feel bad for him because I feel like he was ill equipped to to play this part, but he just got shoved in there because of the success of Superbad and whatever. He was like rising star Michael Sarah, so they were just like, oh, we'll get him, and we put him in there. And then he seems pretty lost throughout the movie. He was kind of in this buckshot thing after, um, uh, what's the, Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. Like right. Bad, this, there was a couple other projects that he just kind of was forced into everything. Right, and he's just like Michael Sarah every time. He's just, it's Michael Sarah play, playing Michael Sarah, And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Well, and it's the classic thing. It's, you know, the least intimidating man 
the whole reason they cast Jay Baruchel in uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist is like, we need a guy who's just slightly more intimidating than Michael <laughs> Sarah. And here, you know, if you had Chris Evans in that role, bullshit. Just like, All right, we're going down to the clinic right now. Or, or I want to keep this baby. But either way, he would have, he, he would have, have had, an exactly. Yeah. Michael Sarah's just like, eh. But to be fair, that's also how the movie treats every single male in the movie, except for the creepy man in the movie the villain the villain yeah. everybody we'll else is just whipped <laughs> uh we meet uh juno's pre- uh excuse me we meet juno's parents bren and mac mcguff mac her biological father bren her stepmother played by allison janney and of course her father mac played by jk simmons who jk simmons i think we can say at this point has one of the better performances in the film but his character is written as one without any spine or balls whatsoever he's a grown-up version of the michael Sarah character and that's why they have the bonding. <laughs> right. Natural instinct here is to get the abortion. Uh, her parents don't strike the viewers, uh, much like her friends. It doesn't seem like there's going to be any repercussion really from this. There's not going to be any impending sense of danger or fear. It's. I think if you hadn't been able to call bullshit on on this movie just from the dialogue and the way that, you know, it's like, okay, nobody speaks like this, right? But then you get to the scene with the parents when they find out that she's pregnant. It's like, bullshit. There's no way, not a single couple of parents in the world that would react like this to their 16-year-old being pregnant. And also, what's the best friend doing there? That's That bothered me this time. I've seen this movie a couple of times before. This is the first time that I realized that best friend has no place being there. She's like in the background just for so she can support. Make a joke. I yeah. could see that in a real real life scenario where it's I've like I, you want someone there. Where when I had to tell my parents I was pregnant, my best friend was not there. So, <laughs> well, then again, it was Peru, so who knows. Were your were your parents as cool with it as Oh know? no. No, no. <laughs> they sent me to live to the states. Said <laughs> <laughs> in 20 years from now, this blonde-haired fucker is going to come along and you're going to pay for it. <laughs> To everyone else, you're going to be Mexican. <laughs> um, so Juno's natural hinkling here is to just go ahead and get it taken care of, get an abortion um, on her aforementioned hamburger phone, schedules an appointment for an abortion, goes to get it. Of course, she gets cold feet. Um, I just want to point out before we go any further about the hamburger phone, I love, I love Juno because she's so unique. <laughs> she's... Like you said, she's not like all the other girls. Oh, just wait till we get to the, the second half of this where I can explain a bit more about the hamburger phone. Its <laughs> role, not only in this movie, but in the marketing of this movie. Um, Is it part of the McDonald's Happy Meal <laughs> tie-in with Jenna? Much, much worse. Uh, you get a you get like a poly bleaker that you pull back and he runs. <laughs> That was one of the toys. <laughs> and and the fucking Jason Bateman getaway car. <laughs> so, of course, her first hankling, like we said, is to just go ahead and get it taken care of. So she does schedule an appointment for an abortion and uh, shows up at the clinic. And um, one of the three characters of any ethnicity outside of Caucasian is outside of the abortion clinic um, protesting it. Yeah, it's it's... You know, I've seen anti-abortion ads that put more effort into convincing you that abortion is bad than this movie. Like, really, her argument, the thing that makes Juno decide not to get an abortion is that she says that the baby has fingernails. Which, one, I'm not sure that's accurate. It could be. But two, is that really what turns... Like, you know, because she goes in and the receptionist offers her a, a flavored condom. 
And then she's filling out the forms and she hears everybody like doing something with their nails. Like they're scratching or they're like uh, tapping on different surfaces. And then she's like, I can't take it anymore. And she leaves. And it was like, that was the turning point. That's that's what that's what convinced her. Well, even it, whatever moralistic standpoint you want to take on the issue of abortion, trust me, we're not here to argue that. You would think something outside of it has fingernails. Right. Exactly. It, it felt like a little bit like we we're talking about Manchester by the Sea uh, in our, our bonus episode and how like, you know, there's a very obvious solution to your problem. So the movie needs to get it out of the way so that you can be like, well, so that there's a movie. Yeah. So in Manchester by the Sea, it's like the guy saying, well, no, I can't adopt the kid because, you know, I, I don't want to. And here it's like Juno saying, well, I guess I can't have an abortion because the baby has fingernails. <laughs> and it's like, it's such like. Well, if this was like Manchester by the Sea, though, in the end, she would just still. <laughs> right. In the, in the end, she would go and get the abortion. <laughs> and then they would have gone fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't the scene outside the um, Planned Parenthood clinic been more effective if it was like a group of protesters? And I, I'm just thinking just from a writing perspective, there's a group of strangers. Well, but she really the, feels the pressure. But there's the one that recognizes her. And because of that, the crowd of strangers focuses in on her. Yeah. I don't know. That's No, absolutely. But it's just the one. And then it comes back to that whole thing. It's like, where is this happening? Like, you know. There seems to be a community, but there's not really a community. It's just this one lonely girl protesting. There's one Republican in town. <laughs> <laughs> it's a border town. It's near Canada somewhere. Um, so, yeah, like you said, she rethinks that she takes off. I don't know if she grabbed the boysenberry flavored condom or not. Um, oh, no, she turned it down since she saw sex. Yeah. And, you know, with when we do these things, we stray away from talking about the writing until the second half. But the line makes his junk smell like pie. That infuriated <laughs> me to no certain extent, and this was the scene where we all were in agreeing, uh, agreement on. It's clearly written by someone of the opposite gender of male because there, there's things in there that are just kind of. I don't want to say with an agenda, but we'll, we'll get to all that a, a bit down the line. Um, moving along here, uh, at, once abortion's out of, out the window, the next options come up about giving it up for adoption. Uh, Leah, her best friend, helps her out, and they're looking through the ads. Was it a newspaper? The Penny Saver. The Penny Saver, mm -hmm. which is the first time I saw this. I didn't realize that that was like a bad thing. You know, I didn't know what a Penny Saver was. Now I get it. That's well, why, like, she, has that. right? She well, I didn't get why she was so horrified when when she found out that they saw it. In Penny there Saver. is that. It's a rare moment of subtlety in the movie because you realize. <laughs> obviously she had left it up to him to place the ad. Right, so he right, was like, right. well, I'll do this, but you know, the least amount of effort or he is the villain after all. That's probably Bateman's idea. Yeah. Um, so we're introduced to Mark and Vanessa played, of course, by, uh, as we've mentioned several times now, Mark played by Jason Bateman, Vanessa played by Jennifer Garner. They are a married couple that lives in the widest of suburbia is looking to adopt a child. Presumably, just because based on you know context clues and everything, um, Jennifer Garner's character is not able to have children. Yeah, they say at some point they've been trying for a while. So, well, and also there's the has Jason Bateman really been trying though? <laughs> He's been faking it. <laughs> you know, says just be happy it's not you, and she, there's that reflection shot of her. Um, so during all this, you know, kind of interwoven is the story of Polly Bleeker and how his life is just. Perfectly normal, as then. <laughs> but we do get that really weird 
I, I don't want to call it establishing shot, but um, you know, it's just kind of a hanger on to remind us that Juno's still present in his mind, where he's holding her panties, right? And and looking at her picture from the yearbook. Oh, is that what it was? I didn't see that he was looking at her. Picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she says something like, "There's something for you to like spank on," and oh, then, no. just kidding. And then, yeah, I didn't realize it was her panties at first. I thought he had just been like jerking off into a sock or something. <laughs> a tube sock. Uh, you put it under the mattress. It's there when you need it. <laughs> but that scene, what it does also is just when his mom talking to him about, you know, uh, Juno McGuff called her earlier. You know how I feel about her. Yada, yada, yada. And I don't like her because she's so unique. Exactly. <laughs> she's so different she's from all the so other girls. Different. She's not like most girls. <laughs> But what it does more than anything is still goes to show you how easy he's getting it. They right. never mention a, a dad, a paw bleaker, do they? No. no, no. He, he's Paulie, and there is a Paul somewhere, but. A Paul Sr., yeah. <laughs> a Paul Sr. that also Paul had a kid first. and, like, walked away. Yeah. He had absolutely no ties to his kid. Like, uh, maybe that's a, you know, unstated theme in the movie of the abandoning father. Right. Really women, know. Women raising kids by themselves. Hey, as opposed to just you know, women are free spirits to do whatever they want. Uh, I didn't realize it was this late into it, but just go to my notes here because I timelined them. This is the at this point is when Juno finally tells uh, Allison Janney and J.K. Simmons, and like we already touched on, there is zero discussion. It's just okay, you can do what you want. I mean, Allison Janney kind of like, have you considered abortion? And Juno's like, no. And she's like, okay, cool. <laughs> That's it. I guess we're getting you some vitamins. Uh, and you know. J.K. Simmons, I, comedically, I do like the line here where he's like, Polly Bleeker, I didn't know he had it in him. but Great delivery. Yeah. yeah. But even here, it's just, he. The, you would think he would have more of a strong opinion on what's going on. But he can't, because he's a man, and he's surrounded by women, and he's whipped. He's just like, he's just like Michael Sayers' character. I mean, he's just not, he's not allowed to have more of a strong opinion I on anything. Because Michael Sayers' character is taking advantage of the situation where he doesn't have to do anything. J.K. Simmons is just dickless. He, he can't do anything. Uh, we do meet Mark and Vanessa, um, and it's clear Vanessa is very, you know, she wants this very badly. And I've seen this movie about three times. I think this was my third time I've seen it. So I know what's to come with Mark. So I uh-huh. his first scene is very establishing in that he's, you know, not really on board with it and everything, but... On the surface, they seem like the perfect, you know, white couple to raise. I again, yeah, this I've seen this movie like three or four times before. So I think with every subsequent viewing, I just Jason Bateman charm, like I find it offending because of how, like, I know what's going to happen. So it, it annoys me that the movie makes me like him so much when I know that then later I'm supposed to turn on him. You know, he's there and he's smiling and he's being funny and he's he's being Jason Bateman. You can't like really hate on Jason Bateman. No. So so it's not when he's that young and that handsome. <laughs> the hair? So it's only he's, ten years ago. He's he he has like some baby fat going. He shouldn't have. He's like a thirty year old at least in that movie. And he's got the baby fat going that we're uh you know now in the in the last season of Rest of Development, he's lean. <laughs> So we meet them, and then we get what becomes this big story of uh, Mark shows Juno his room that Vanessa's granted him with a guitar, and they talk about the Melvins and punk rock. She's so cool. She's a 16-year-old that 
And she, yeah, she's a 16 year old that apparently knows that the best time for rock was in 1970. She, she knows her shit. I was looking in the scene for when they run into Vanessa at the mall to see if there was a hot topic in the background because <laughs> I imagine she just has like a line of credit at hot topic. <laughs> Walks in, Juno, where you been? Hey, home slice. Isn't that what they call it? <laughs> That's where he works, you know, because he only can get part time at the convenience store. Right. So he has to work at hot topic too. The what is it? The, this is one doodle that can't be undid. Home skillet. Jesus, we, I would I wouldn't like believe that Rain Wilson did his own dialogue. Like they they let him just improvise. So I can the like script was written after that. <laughs> yeah, Every, real people talk. Everything else follows this. Uh, we move on to Act Two, or as it's titled in the movie, Winter. Uh, my first note here is the world hates women. I'm trying to remember exactly what that reflects, but. Um, did that have anything to do with the movie or just something you were... <laughs> it just hit, it just hit you. It's like it's Trump's America and the world hates women. Um, but there's all the struggle of her, you know, being pregnant, all the judgment at school. This is the um, ultrasound scene. Right. I was about to say this is the ultrasound scene because that's when you said, man, even women hate on each other. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what sparked it because the uh, ultrasound technician really just is throwing the utmost shade at Juno during this entire thing um, and really just vilifying it. And she really, she's completely right though. Yeah. I was about to say <laughs> for the first time in the movie, she's present, she's being a total bitch about how she's presenting what she's saying about, you know, it's a toxic environment to be raised by a teen mother and all these things. But it's the first voice of reason at all that's been heard in the entire film. She's, right. she's Oliver Platt in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> Completely right about everything, just kind of a dick about right, it. Right, right. She is really the first person that actually, even like, I don't think that she meant to, but that really puts forth an argument pro-abortion. Of course, by now she's like super pregnant, but still, yeah. you know, like somebody should have said this a few months ago, but nobody did. Like all they had was like, "Hey, fingernails," but this, the, like this, late into the movie, we finally get the different, different argument, and she gets chastised and like shamed by her occupation. It's it's really off putting, especially after you've seen. Because I remember the first time I saw this movie, like I wasn't sure what happened. I was like, "Did I miss something? Did she like really say something a lot worse than what she said?" Yeah. But then no, when you you rewatch it, you're like, "No, she she just made a good point." Yeah. In and a very was, inappropriate was way. Very, yeah, straightforward and right. Yeah. It's basically what the tone of the scene. Your takeaway should be is no. A sixteen-year-old is completely in a mature state of mind to make a decision about having a child. Yeah, and it's not even like Juno is is presenting herself in that scene to be like mature or or able of having a kid or anything. You know, she's kind of being a, an idiot with her friend. They're making yeah. stupid jokes. And so it's completely warranted. There's a line of dialogue that establishes that they obviously, they went to Taco Bell before they came there. <laughs> so clearly red flag. Number the idea one. of a human life, depending on her <laughs> is it's terrifying. Keep in mind, this is our second character of any ethnicity in the film. <laughs> and the third one doesn't come into play for any reason. So we'll just say it's one of uh, Michael Sarah's friends that hasn't hit puberty yet and they can't grow a mustache. Yeah. There are three characters of any ethnicity outside of Caucasian. Uh, now, after the ultrasound, um, what's the picture called? A sonogram? I, I think so. Sonogram. Yes. Juno takes the sonogram to Mark and Vanessa. Vanessa is not home, and this is the first big scene we get of establishing chemistry 
between Mark and Juno. They watch horror movie together, and uh, Juno has a very because she's not like all the other kids at her high school. She knows who Dario Argento. Is. Of course, she knows Suspiria, and she knows Suspiria is his best work. If she, they could have quoted any other movie, um, <laughs> just to like you. Send 10 seconds on IMDb and you can find any other film that he directed and, and drop it there. But you had to go to the, the classics. Yeah, it's like, fuck that. Like the whole Dario Argento thing is just so, like, going back to it, being pretentious and it's just being a, a hipster's wet dream. I mean, you could make it a little more believable. You know, she could say Wes Craven and I'll be like, okay, I can kind of see that you know she'd be more likely even like the argument that jason bateman establishes is this guy like you know all the special effects and blood and shit she could have made like a tom savini reference in terms of even that yeah 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 so but it's just i don't know it's just trying too hard yeah it's it thinks it's a lot smarter than it is but but and here's savini would have been a little too hip for the room Is he wearing a Soundgarden shirt at the end? Yeah, he's wearing the Soundgarden. Uh, what's the album that fucking Black Hole Sun's on? Is that the one where uh, Jennifer Garner says, your shirt, your shirt, yeah, your shirt's stupid? And she uses an Alice in Chains shirt as the, the paint shirt. Because I thought that was odd because that was that supposed to establish like that was one of her old shirts. Like they used that used to kind of be like their shared life and she's moved on or did she just grab one of his shirts and it's like underlying tension because like she grabbed one of his old shirts because oh we're just gonna paint the room and now his like alice and chain shirt that he got when his band was on tour in in germany (laughs) and now it's ruined because there he's he's not happy in that scene no the the more interesting story is with them um Jennifer Garner says, I can't wait for you to be Kurt Cobain, so just let's just go ahead to it. <laughs> Jennifer Garner, all her music knowledge is just based from 1990 <laughs> to 1993. It's when she grew up and then she just stopped which, paying attention. Which is sad for her because, I mean, everybody knows that the best years for rock were 1973. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever fucking year she says. Uh, punk Rock Volume 1. Vanessa comes home and she is very neurotic. You can tell, though, basically she's just been burned before in the situation. She thinks Juno's there because something's wrong, something's going wrong with the baby, all this shit. You know, worst case scenario is immediately where her giant mind jumps to. But then there's also the overriding tension of like, why is my husband spending, spending time with this 16 year old? Um, from there, Juno goes to Polly's house just to visit him. And he, oh yeah, Polly's in this movie. <laughs> he thanks her for you know saying, "Hey, I'm glad my parents won't know that it's my kid." <laughs> I told you, it, really the scene. <laughs> it was treated with the gravity of like, "Oh man, thanks for telling, thanks for not telling my parents that I got drunk and crashed at your place." Well, no, it also sets up, uh, it plants the seed for Juno to emasculate him later on because she suggests that he should like start dating this other girl that apparently smells like soup. Katrina DeVore. Katrina DeVore. And then later on, like 20 minutes later in the movie, she's just going to rip him a new one because he actually asks her for prom, that, you know, to go to prom. Sorry. That setup is just so she can reference soupy sales later. There is <laughs> no reason why anyone of her age group, arguably anyone of our age group, should know who soupy sales was. And that turned out to be your Oscar clip. Do either of you guys knew, know who he was? No. I just thought exactly. it was a play on words. I, I just I just didn't realize that was a thing. I just 
thought Soupy Sales was just... So what you're telling me is Diablo Cody wrote down about 20 pop culture references and then figured out how to sculpt a script around them. She wrote the movie around them, yeah. Soupy Sales is pushing it for pop culture, but <laughs> technically, I guess, yes. Did you notice, though, uh, the scene where she uh, goes to tell him, like, oh, hey, we're not going to tell your parents, so don't worry, man. It's cool. <laughs> Your bastard child is like, you know, <laughs> it's our little yeah. <laughs> it's on it's on the down low. Um, on his nightstand, he has the hamburger phone too. If there was doubt. You knew at the end of this movie they were they were going to be okay. Uh, from there, Juno and Leah <laughs> they run into Vanessa in the mall, and um, Vanessa's there. You know, just kind of are they children she knows because there's that shot of her like playing with children it's it's kind of established like i'm guessing she's with friends and they have kids but i mean it could just be uh, random she, random kids she's <laughs> just grabbing children and taking them into the play area in front of macy's have you seen electra <laughs> uh, no <laughs> neither did anyone else um so they finally run into each other and immediately vanessa like goes back to that, oh my God, what's wrong type thing. Um, then the genuinely funny line of, I'm here with my girlfriend, and Leah's like, you're gay? I thought that was <laughs> genuinely funny. Um, but we do get Vanessa getting to finally touch Juno's tummy um, before her husband. But, uh, <laughs> you get in on that. Um, and oh, yeah, they, ha- they haven't danced yet, right? I was about to say, well, he kind of touched. Yeah, we have the, two more scenes. Right. 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 You touched on it about when you... One of you, I'm sorry, uh, first saying when you saw it, you didn't buy the scene. Um, and she does kind of blow it. She's good in the movie, considering oh, I she has the, uh, baby. <laughs> she has an extremely limited range and yeah. pretty much everything. But in that scene, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's happened, and it's more real talk than than Concerns Corner. But I mean, I will say, like to me, it it works better the more you see it. Like on repeated watching, it. The first time it's just it doesn't work, <laughs> and I think it's just like the I don't know the inflection or the it's just kind of a silly thing to do anyway in the context of you know they're at the mall and in front of Macy's yeah it's just and they've been making jokes about other stuff and the movie suddenly decides that this is the time where we're gonna get serious and she's gonna get her moment she's been kind of a pain in the ass up till then Jennifer Garner uh, she's in and this is the one moment where you're supposed to really feel for her. So sorry, I got us off on the tangent. No, I'm about to start <laughs> defending her character, but the portion we're in right now, we, I'll, I'll save that. We all agree she's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and actually, in a more contrarian's corner, like side of it, like I also I do resent this because it's part of the whole. Oh, let's make Jason Bateman look like a horrible person. You know, it's yeah. like oh look, she has a connection with the baby, so of course she's on the right side, and Bateman is a horrible, more you know, person because he doesn't want kids. Yeah, and it's like no, it's sure it's stupid, and he fucking <laughs> plays guitar and has comics. He doesn't want to decide what color the baby's room is gonna be, and uh, you know. Yeah, it, we didn't touch on that scene enough, but the, the like you said, there's a huge amount of tension in the scene to begin with, and it's it's a scene that again is such a clash of the sexes, and both you know the way it's written, but also just the what the, the subject nature of the scene is is that whole. It's two different shades of yellow. So the scene to set it for our listeners, because it's not something that's imperative to the story of the film, but they're setting up the nursery for the baby. Jennifer Garner has two different colors of paint. One's custard and one's what, like fucking eggshell or something like that. Uh, they're both cheesecake? yellow. Yeah. yeah. Cheese. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this guy. Yeah. So both, Look like cheesecake. They're both yellow. 
and it's this scene where Jason Bateman's just saying there's no difference to it. And it's He's right. That's the thing. It's written like this battle of the sexes thing, like, oh, you know, women see the difference in these things and men don't. But the way the scene's written, Jason Bateman is wrong. Right, not it's just that. He established as being wrong. Right. He, exactly. I was gonna say, he's not just wrong. He's an asshole. Yeah. And he's just there. And he just, you know, because Jennifer Garner keeps talking about it and he's just quiet. And I'm like, I can see myself in that. You know, I've been yeah. that guy so many times where I'm like, I'm done with this argument. Just do whatever you want. That doesn't make me an asshole. That doesn't make me just like the person that doesn't want to argue about it anymore. But the way the scene's written is Jennifer Garner is the clear winner. Right, <laughs> right. And Bateman is just like framed like, you know, he's all angry. And he, You're a fraud. <laughs> yeah. He just wanted to hang out in his room. It was probably Saturday. <laughs> Play his guitar. Read his comic. He got that Alice in Chains shirt on tour, and now it's got <laughs> custard paint all over it. Uh, but yeah, so from here we go into, you know, from the mall where we get this really establishing that Vanessa is this really caring and loving um, sentient being that is going to take this offspring and lift it high above her head like Simba. We go to spring, or act three, as it were, immediately into Mark being this colossal monster, <laughs> where Juno's at school, and she calls him to talk about music. And again, I I haven't seen this movie in at least five or six years. Uh, this, I believe, is the third time I've seen it. And yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable, more so than any other time I've watched it. Like, they're flirting on the phone. Yeah, that's uh, that's, I mean, he's an adult. A full-grown adult that shouldn't be doing this, and uh, the way he's framed, he's framed. You know, it's just kind of a close-up, but you can kind of guess because he's at home, so you can kind of guess he's not wearing any pants. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, he's like, "Go learn something," and she's like, "You need to stop watching porn." And it's like, "Ah, come on!" And there is the line written in there where he says, "I can't wait." See what you teach me. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're talking about music, and then of course it all turns sexual. It's wrong, but uh, I think he views her maybe not in a sexual way, but more of like a lost youth way. Like yeah. she still got everything ahead of her. This is what I want. Maybe not necessarily a physical thing. She's she's excited about his stuff in the way that Jennifer Garner isn't. Yeah, and that that is something. At no point in this movie does he try to make like a physical advance on her. But... I mean, they dance. Yeah. Yeah, it's t- it's tense, but yeah. Uh, going back to what Julio said, this is following this is when uh, Juno finds out that Polly's going to uh, prom with Katrina Devore, and we get not only her big scene where she tears him a new asshole, but as Reed uh, eloquently pointed out, we we're watching the Oscar clip. Of- I believe, yeah, I believe that was the clip they played for her. Ellen Page, and- Juno, <laughs> Kitty Pride, Juno. <laughs> And then we get soupy sales. That's that's again. When it you guys don't, and that says it all. <laughs> uh, so after she goes off on Polly, she establishes herself as a strong, independent woman. She runs to her van, puts on lipstick, and goes to see Mark. She drives all the way out to East Jesus Nowhere, as Alice and Janie said in the uh, middle of the film. And that did make me laugh. Yeah, and this is the fucking. The shot that we all lost our shit over. Did not. I, I've only seen this once. Uh, must have been eight or nine years ago. Um, I did not remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking like uh, I'm trying to think of something to equate it to, but it's uh, it's Alfred Molina in Spider Man Two <laughs> when the little uh, chip crashes in the back and he realizes the power he has. 
She pulls up and we get this shot where fucking he's like looking through blinds, right? He's up, yeah, like second or third floor of their McMansion. And Mark the Monster sees that Juno's arrived and he sees her and this smile cracks on his face and he basically runs to the front door to greet her. And they go down to the basement and like all bad made-for-TV movies start about these things. Shows her a comic of... um, Oh, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Uh, Most Fruitful Yuki. (laughs) That's what it's called. And and where did he get this comic? I was about to say, where did he get this comic? <laughs> uh, he was in Japan opening for... Was it the Melvins? It was the Melvins, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On tour. And um, this basically just leads to her giving some music to play and them dancing to uh... reenact his uh, senior promise. Well, the they, that's the thing. She's like, uh, oh, you won't know this one. It's Mott the Hoople, but it's like the Mott the Hoople song... That everybody Everyone knows. knows. <laughs> it's the one All that's on. Uh, it's yeah. the one that's on uh, Guitar Hero Aerosmith. That's how popular it is. Oh, really? oh is it on there? Yeah, that, that's how I know it. And it's it's a good song, but it's like it's the one that everybody knows from them. And like, but Jason Bateman even has to take a second uh, when it starts. It kind of like reckless. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, the Suspiria of Matthew. <laughs> So they begin dancing and they're getting closer and closer. And this, you know, while I said there's no like physical advance, this was more tense than I remembered it being. Well, yeah, he moves her hands. Yeah. And then she well, then her. she puts her head on him. And yeah. yeah. And then he basically says, I'm leaving Vanessa. And like all in this one move is trying to kind of position them to like do something. And he's all she gets all mad. And he's like, I, I don't understand why you're upset with this. I think that this is finally where I I completely feel betrayed by the movie because up till then I thought that maybe Jason Bateman could pull out of it and just be like, "What am I doing? You know, this yeah. is this is nonsense. I'm in my 30s, and this is a girl that's still going to high school." He's like but, the captain in Titanic that shoots the guy and kills him, and then, <laughs> my God, what have I done? Uh, but no, instead he goes all in. He's like, "I'm getting my own place," and then he says, "I thought you'd be happy about this." Like, I I want more of that. I want to know what his idea was going to happen was. <laughs> Juno was going to move in with them. I wanted the movie to be about um, Mark and Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more interesting. Yeah. Like, that relationship, the facade of the perfect suburban couple, you know. And then this segues into uh, Jennifer Garner's best scene of acting in this. You know, we kind of go back and forth about how we feel about certain scenes in this Uh Probably press that. In my opinion, the best scene of acting when she goes up and it's and Juno's crying and Vanessa, like, what's wrong? And then Juno goes to leave and she cuts her off in the doorway and you know what's wrong? Or she says, you know, what's the matter? And then looks at Mark, what's the matter? And then Mark, damning moment. (laughs) Go ahead. I was just gonna say the 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 great shot of him like running in to make sure that nobody says anything. Like he's the bike shop owner from that episode of Different Strokes, trying to make sure that, trying to make sure everything stays quiet. He runs up and just, uh, just a little hormonal, isn't that right, Juno? <laughs> his hair is all messed up. He's out. Of, his shirt is untucked. And well, then she's crying, putting her clothes back on as she comes up, and poor fucking electric. It man. doesn't look good. Yeah. No, Jennifer Garner even says because she's like, "What happened?" And then she tells him, "What did you do?" So, oh yeah, I, I I wrote that down and I forgot to bring that up, but yeah, she looks at him. What did you do? I mean, alias just cut into the core. There's some history there. Well, that you know, there's things that aren't flushed out um, way earlier in the movie when they're nervous about actually getting the baby, and Jason Bateman's like, "This happened before," but you know, cold feet, and it's like 
who got cold? <laughs> so it was this very great scene of conflict, and it basically agreed upon that Mark's going to leave to get this shit together, and he's going to get a, an apartment in the city. A loft. A loft, yes. And, Which sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, and then Jennifer Garner says, well, aren't you just the cool guy? Yeah, it, it was just so like dismissive of just, I mean, I guess men in general, you know, just like Juno's dismissive of Polly's any sort of involvement, you know, in the yeah. pregnancy. And, uh, and in a way, you know, uh, her dad, uh, what's his name? Mick? Rick? Mac. 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 He's also kind of, you know, emasculated by his wife and, you know, his two daughters. And now there's a moment when right before Juno runs out that Jennifer Garner tells her, he's like, it's just been silly. He's just being a guy. It's like that basically tells you what the movie thinks about men in general. It's just being a guy. Men bad, women good. Yeah, it's just, you know, he just can't handle it. So Juno has her breakdown on the side of the highway on her way back. Uh, she's very upset. And she finally gets back home to the only scene of logical thought in the entire film where J.K. Simmons finally gets his big monologue about, you know, there really is no such thing as true love. It's just basically taking it day to day and working on what you can. In my opinion, the best thing you can do is find a person who loves you for exactly what you are. Good mood, bad mood, ugly, pretty, handsome, what have you. The right person's still going to think the sun shines out your ass. <laughs> that's the kind of person that's worth sticking with. I have to disagree with you because to me, this is like the scene where J.K. Uh, Simmons gives terrible advice. He just basically tells her, well, you know, if somebody likes you, just go with them. But that's not really because I'm sure that Jason Bateman liked her like Jennifer Garner at some point. But that's not really what's bothering Juno. What's bothering Juno allegedly is that, oh, you know, they used to be happy and now they're not together anymore. So she's she's asking me, like, will relationships last? And he doesn't have an answer for that. He instead he just says, "Well, you know, just just stick around with the one that likes you." But he's saying it's basically a day to day thing. He even talks about like his his current wife and his ex wife how it's like a day to day struggle. That all being said, it would have been a lot more helpful an hour prior in the film if he had had this much <laughs> conviction and thought process of anything. Uh, but I, I that's probably just me because I genuinely find that scene to be pretty good. You're just a romantic. That's. This have. have we not established on this podcast that I'm a hopeless romantic? Right. It's why Mask of the Phantasm is my favorite Batman movie. But that's why, because literally what that advice does is just drive her to make up with Polly. Well, I was about to say, what it does is it creates this really weird thing of like, I, this movie is like, you know, men are terrible except for Michael Sarah. <laughs> he, he can skirt all the responsibility of getting a 16-year-old pregnant and then he's going to be rewarded at the end. And he still wins the race. He does. He wins the race. It's a lifetime supply of Tic Tacs. That's right. That's uh, We had the three characters of ethnicity, but in the end, Michael Sarah beats a whole group of black kids. So basically, <laughs> the, that's what uh, Diablo Cody thinks of minorities. Um, but yeah, he gets like this fun scavenger hunt to find Juno, and then she apologizes to him, um, and we get the Michael Sarah. She apologizes to him. <laughs> I'm sorry you got me pregnant. <laughs> but they pronounce their undevoted, or excuse me, their devoted undying love to each other at 16 years old. Now, you know, it's never really going to change. And then she goes into labor, cries out that she's in labor by saying, Thundercats are go. That was a, that was a trailer moment. Was it? Yeah. 
What was the 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 one trailer moment Reed and I recalled while watching it was when she says, or uh, J.K. Simmons like, I thought you were the type of girl to know, know when to say when. I don't really know what type of girl I am. Credits <laughs> coming this holiday season. So the baby is born. Uh, Juno goes to what appears to be a fairly painless labor. So if you're going to get pregnant, do it while you're 16 because it looks like it's pretty easy to do. You're more flexible back then. Nothing like Julianne Moore in nine months. That looks like hell going through that. <laughs> and, uh, the baby's born. Uh, Jennifer Garner's happy to be a mom. You know, we go to summer or, you know, epilogue would be a much easier way to cut it down. And basically we're taken out with a song. Now, skipping over that Polly wins his race. Comes to the hospital, sees Juno in the hospital bed, and then, as we were talking about a bit earlier, has the man-to-man moment with J.K. Simmons. Wordless. Who is... Silent. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) Has nothing to say, had nothing to be... Knocked up my daughter. And wasn't there for... Never did anything. Did not go to Taco Bell with them. Yeah. Just nothing. Um, But now, Polly and Juno are a happy couple, and they play a song. And they play a song, and then you realize that they've been playing through the entire movie. Like, they really made the soundtrack. Because to me, it sounds like the same band has been playing through the entire movie. Just like the folks, the folks guitar. And yes, there, I just, I think of just, you know, the kids with the like skinny jeans and the glasses, the round glasses, and the just like vaping and it's just that's what i think of when i hear the those people and then you know at the end is Polly and juno are like playing that kind of music where like they're taking turns singing out of tune about their love and and if we're just gonna wait for them to be kurt cobain it's gonna be too long and presumably that's actually yeah let's see these two in 20 years from now and do like the like the train spotting sequel it's called <laughs> revolutionary but... <laughs> <laughs> train spotting sequel. Yeah. So, which character from this would be? Um, I mean, you have to bring back Bateman, Zod, Michael Shannon. Yeah, which character from the <laughs> Juno universe would end up becoming the Michael Shannon character from Revolutionary Road <laughs> in the Juno universe? Uh, Polly's Indian friend that runs track. With him. <laughs> oh, he's crazy, but he's the only one who knows everything. <laughs> Right, that would definitely the the Juno sequel twenty years later would be about them finally getting pregnant. Yeah, and then the, how that like messes them up. <laughs> what do you know? Twenty years from now, Michael Sarah is also like, whoa, let's let's <laughs> let's pump the brakes here. And then he has sex with Olivia Thurlby in that one scene because in Revolutionary Road they both cheat on each other like five times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I know Kate Winslet like hooks up with the neighbor yeah. who's like way under her league and way to go neighbor who's there right place right time the only thing that was missing after this was the title credit that or the the title card that said mark drove off a cliff and died horrifically because <laughs> <laughs> we get you know all the establishing shots of juno's happy and vanessa's happy yada 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 it should have been it should have been bateman playing the credit song at the end he should have played us out that's in Japan. <laughs> that's the thing. Uh, Bateman doesn't even get like a second unit shot of him like boxing <laughs> up all his stuff. It's kind of like um, uh, him sleeping in a U-Haul, placing a roach <laughs> motel on the ground. It's like because the- <laughs> he lost the loft for some reason. Uh, it's like in the kids are all right. Uh, Mark Ruffalo's exit from the movie. Or it's just like, no, you're a man and you're horrible. And he like goes outside and like throws down his motorcycle helmet and that's it. <laughs> he learned his lesson. 
All right, we've we've dragged this on a bit. It was fun breaking it down, but uh, let's get to some real discussion about this movie. About how much we actually love it. I think we all have some pretty strong opinions about it. Cause he gets up in the morning and he goes to work at nine and he comes back home at five thirty. Gets the same train every time. Cause his world is built on punctuality. Tiger. All right, real talk about Juno, which originally premiered on September 1st, 2007, made the festival circuit. Like I said, it was the Toronto Film Festival, uh, Austin Film Festival, and a couple others there. I remember it got a pretty limited release in the fall, like a very limited release, and for whatever reason, that's when I saw it. Uh, it was distributed more wide as a Christmas movie in 2007. Uh, directed by Jason Reitman. He, of course, mentioned, written by Diablo Cody, a budget of an estimated $7 million. Turned around, <laughs> $230 million is how much this movie made at the box office. It did not make that. In the U.S.? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the combined star power of Ellen Page, Michael Sarah, Allison Janey. It made $230 million domestic? According to IMDb, it made $230 million domestic. My God. It was the first Fox Searchlight picture. To make over a hundred million dollars, I did look this up because I knew it had to break it. And then, yeah, of course, Slumdog Millionaire made three hundred and seventy-eight million. Uh, but it makes sense if it was a if they repackaged it as a holiday release. I mean, that's a lot of money. I, I knew it money. did well, but yeah, crazy, it's a lot. Uh, shot in thirty-one days in Canada, obviously, as we said, stands at ninety-four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, a towering number. Um, it was Roger Ebert's number one movie of 2007. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress, and... Uh, Best Screenplay. Screenplay. Jason Reitman was nominated too, right? Yeah. yeah, so excuse me. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. It won Best Screenplay. It was nominated for the other three. Uh, to go back before I forget the hamburger phone. Best Screenplay of the Year. <laughs> Think and let's it. just go ahead because it was a fucking murderer's row. It was a 1995 of uh, you know when Shawshank <laughs> and Pulp Fiction were all in there. We had No Country for Old Men, fucking There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, Atonement, and Juno. And Atonement is okay. Those uh, were the best picture nominees that year. Yeah, but say what you will about Juno, it does not belong in the same breath as No Country for Old Men or There Will Be Blood. And it's also awesome that both those movies came out <laughs> like two. Of the best movies released during my lifetime. Michael Clayton's a great movie too. Michael what, do you have the what were the other screenplay nominees? There will be Michael blood Clayton would have had to have been one of them, I would imagine. No, because that's uh, adapted. Oil, of course. Oil. I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with the novel, but uh, Lars and the Real Girl, Michael Clayton, Ratatouille, and the Savages. Ratatouille and the Savages are better movies than Juno. Man, I haven't seen the Savages or uh, Lars and the Real Girl. I've never seen Lars in the Real World. I have to recuse myself from this discussion. It's a good film. I was just curious. <laughs> well, since we've established that, to go back to the hamburger phone before we move on. Um, so the hamburger phone that was used in both Juno and Polly's room 
in the film was actually the hamburger phone that Diablo Cody used. It was hers. It was her piece of property. And the screeners of the movie were sent out with hamburger phones for critics. <laughs> like they were sent to them to entice them to review the movie and give it a favorable review. And then, of course, so somewhere in Roger Ebert's office <laughs> was a hamburger phone. And then, just to touch on it briefly, because uh, one of the things the movie is known for is the Juno effect in 2008, uh, 17-under-16-year-old women uh, were impregnated, and Time Magazine dubbed it the Juno effect. Have you never heard about this? No, I've no. Not that no. sounds like horseshit. <laughs> no, I remember. Uh, I remember. How many sixteen-year-olds get pregnant on a daily basis? Why is that news? Oh, I'm sorry. It was seventeen students under sixteen at the uh, years of age at a uh, Massachusetts high school. So, like one in individual high school. Uh, Time Magazine called it the Juno effect, and Time stated that some adults dismissed the statistic as an outliner, while other accused films uh, of 2007 Juno and Knocked Up for glamorizing teenage pregnancy. But they don't. People clearly had not seen Knocked Up because they're not teenagers. And two, yeah. I'm going to go with outliner because, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean. I'm I'm sure some fucking straw man argument there. Yeah, even if you don't like the movie, CS had some new or something. <laughs> the were dropping. I think that even if you don't like the movie, you can't say that it it's like pro teenage pregnancy. No, the only per- person that would say that is someone who hasn't seen it. They would see that it's a movie that's marketed based on a teenager being pregnant, but they have not watched the movie. Right. It's just it's not pro abortion, but that doesn't make it pro teenage pregnancy. It's pro women. Uh, it, point, it, it points out what we all know that pregnancy is quirky and fun <laughs> <laughs> so those are all my little fun little trivial facts before moving into it uh, it points out that that pregnancy is okay as long as you have like understanding parents a really cool uh family that will take care of the kid after you pop it out that and, are well to do right. so they can handle all the huge expenses yes and that the dad is just okay with skirting all the responsibility <laughs> oh yeah 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 Women can raise them, raise the babies. Uh, so we, we all have three different um, perspectives of when we viewed this movie. Uh, of course, before we get to that, I'm sorry, Julio, I took over there. Go ahead. Oh no, no, no yeah, we have we have a few, you know, of those six percenters in Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Joe Blow from Joe Blow's Movie Emporium says, "Yes, I'll say it. This film is overrated." Well, <laughs> uh, Jeremy Heilman from MovieMartyr.com says that Juno has been. Uh, heralded for its realistic portrayal of a teen girl's point of view, demonstrates how poorly the demographic has been represented on screen. Gina Carbone from Seacoast Newspapers says, the most overrated film of the year isn't bad. It's just trying too hard. Michael Srego... That's a very fair assessment. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, that's the one I agree with the most, probably. Uh, Michael Srego from Baltimore Sun says, too much of it is like a subpar episode of Freaks and Geeks, padded out to 92 minutes with pseudo-witty dialogue. Oh, that's even better. (laughs) Uh, David Cornelius from eFilmCritic.com says, what a hideous piece of fall hipster crap. Fall hipster, I think it's just hipster. And finally, Walter Chaw from Film Freak Central says, you can't spend this much time being too cool for school and earn a sentimental rim shot. It's the boy who cried human. I, I agree with Walter a lot of the time. So um, I think that was a bit extreme. So I think we have three different times uh, perspectives <clears throat> when we saw this. Like I said, I saw it during a very extremely limited release when it like in fall of 07 before the hype train started and everything. 
And I remember coming out of it and saying, man, that was kind of a fun little movie. And then all the shit like started picking up, the snowball started rolling, started getting that one for Oscars. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, Reed, you said you saw it a while after. The that. exact opposite, uh, well after the hype train had ended. Uh, so I guess summer of 2008, one of my roommates had it on DVD. I had never, I'd missed it. So I was like, all right, let's watch it. And I did. <laughs> so you made it all the way to the end. This is my second time having seen it. <laughs> so my, you know, obviously it was clouded by the massive hype around it. Um, so that probably didn't help it. Um, rewatching it now, um, I don't dislike it as much as I did then. I still don't think it's a good film. There, and Julio, when did you see it? Um, I think I was I was trying to figure it out earlier, and I, I know I saw it. Uh, a friend had come to visit for my birthday, so it was in January. So I think I got it on that sure. uh, the expansion. Yeah. yeah, but but like I went to see it not really expecting like awards caliber anything. You know, I just went to see it because I'd seen the trailer a couple of times. It seemed like an okay movie to watch, so I did not have the hype weighing on me when I watched it. And I remember enjoying it, and then. I've seen it a few times since then, and every time, it's just like the things that don't work bother me more. But there's still I, I find enough things that work to make it a pleasant experience overall. Read said uh, while we were watching it, and it is a movie riddled with great actors and actresses, and the acting in it is the furthest thing from the problem. It all boils down to the writing, and you know I'm not here just to pick on Diablo Cody. One, it's clearly a movie that's written by a female, and it's clearly a movie that has an agenda. Um, that makes it sound so sinister, though. <laughs> Let's say, yeah, you're, you're well, taking a stance there. I, I'm not trying to be sinister. It's you know we've reviewed movies before where I've said that about it. It's like it clearly has a message it's trying to get across. Um, okay, let's start there. What do you think is the message that the movie is? Ten bad women good. <laughs> that you know. The message is that, you know, women, no matter the circumstance, should be trusted to prevail, which is not a bad message whatsoever. It, it's just saying that, you know, even in blackest day, darkest night, no people <laughs> shall, shall escape their sight, that women are able to prevail, which is fine. But there's also all these other messages in the movie that kind of go against that. Um, and it can't quite make up its mind what it thinks about men because you have these characters like Polly that do nothing and then are rewarded for it. And then you have the clear-cut villain of the film, Mark, and then the dad, who is kind of spineless, but still like the redeemer. Um, what it's trying to say is that women are the powerful force, and that's perfectly fine. Where the writing really fails is mainly the dialogue. That comparison to Tarantino is ridiculous. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I just remember that opening scene in the convenience store. I just kind of like, well, people don't talk like this. And <laughs> I was, I remember being petrified because I was like, is the whole movie going to be like this? And it's not. It's weird because that kind of dialogue is only that scene and then a couple other when it's just her and uh, Olivia. Th Olivia th They'll yeah. be talking. But man, that that one's that opener's hard. Yeah, the, the Rain Wilson scene is pretty tough. Like I, I don't think I cared much the first time I was watching it, but every time I watched it since, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It immediately it just... took me out of it both times, like especially the first time because I was like, "Oh, this is really bad," 
it sets a very bad tone. And like the the first thing is isn't the very first thing is Juno yelling at the dog like, "Oh my gosh, shut your gob!" And then walks down, and then you get uh, Dwight. Your ego is prego. <laughs> yeah, the doodle can't be undid. Home skillet. Uh, Jesus, it's so terrible. Now, Best I'll... screenplay of the year. Yeah, but 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 okay. So in its defense, just to play kind of play devil's advocate, because if I was if I was reading screenplays, like I've been known to do, it would come across as a unique voice. You know what I mean? Like, I'll be like, okay, this stands out. Maybe yes. on paper it works. R- right, on paper. That's what I mean. You know, it's like, it would grab my attention because it would have a unique, consistent voice. Yes, this is not how people talk, but this is how these people talk. And I'll be like, okay, I buy it. What well, else do you have? It kind of cheats then because, like I said, that's the only scene really right. like that. Yeah. It, I mean, like it has even, a, They have the phone conversation where she first calls to her pregnant, which is terrible as well. Yeah. Right. But that's really the only. Want us to blog? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, that, that first scene, it's almost like a fucking cold open that has no like resounding impact on the rest mm-hmm. of the film other than she's pregnant, of course. But And then there's the really weird thing that I've always had a problem with where she mimes hanging herself. Well, with the Twizzlers yeah. or whatever? Which obviously it's done for like almost borderline comedic effect, but it goes into that whole problem with the movie of there's no voice of reason and anyone that tries to talk about any, no one tries to tell her what to do, which, you know, obviously if you're an adult, no one can tell you what to do. She's a fucking 16 year old kid. And no one, and it really plays into also, it immediately came to mind, a film reading myself saw a few years ago called Obvious Child uh, with Jenny Slate, which deals with a moderately similar issue. Was that the name of it? Yeah. Okay. Where there's no, there's not one single character in the movie that has a conflicting point of view. In this, the closest thing to someone with a conflicting point of view comes is the uh, stenographer. What is it? Oh, the uh, sonogram technician? Yes, and she's immediately vilified for having... Stenographer? <laughs> she's typing up the minutes. Went to Taco Bell. <laughs> Got pregnant. <laughs> but she's immediately vilified for having an opposing view. I think, see... It's I, not even an opposing view, like, I want to touch her, because she's just like... She's the one right character. It's like, <laughs> you're really immature and not treating this anywhere near it how it should be. It's like, it's really good that you're giving it up for adoption. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I, I find it refreshing, actually, that, yes, this is not said. I mean, very early on, we're just like, okay, this is not the real world because of the way that people speak and whatever. So, so I found it refreshing just from as far as movie setups go. That he she has parents that don't react in the way that we're used to seeing parents react. I think that's actually part of that uh, Ebert review, his glowing review. He was like really enamored with the way that the family reacted to it, and I don't know that it's a realistic it was the way phone that too. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it's it's a realistic portrayal of it. But it's in a movie, you know. Once you're once you buy into the situation of like, oh, this is this is just how people act in this movie. Like, okay, so she's got really cool parents. You know, that parents are like really cool with the whole thing. And then if you can buy that, and I think that's easy to buy that because of the performances by J.K. Simmons and Alison Janney, then you're like, okay, I'm in with that. I think part of the problem with the dialogue also earlier, because 
I could imagine maybe there were there were some lines that maybe J.K. Simmons, Alice, and Jenny were like, "Yeah, we're not saying this," you know. Whereas I could like, very easily see J.K. Simmons <laughs> refusing to say those lines. Right. Whereas like maybe you know Rain oh, Wilson. The what the fuck is that? <laughs> yes. Rain Wilson, uh, Olivia, whatever you know. Their scenes, yeah, their scenes they don't work that well. Maybe because you know they just they just stuck to to lines that didn't really flow naturally from them. I don't know, but I can I can buy. I like the parents being kind of cool, or at least having like that that different take on it than you would expect. J.K. Simmons is a phenomenal actor and can pretty much pull anything off that you ask him. And he's very good in this movie. Absolutely. Now, as we kind of alluded to in the first portion, to myself. And I don't mean to speak for both of you, but I think from both y'all's perspective too, the real point of interest in the movie really takes off with the introduction of Jennifer Garner and Jason Bateman. That's when like the movie becomes genuinely interesting. Well, yeah, when you're talking about like, that's the closest thing the movie has to any kind of conflict. Well, yeah, that's that's a big thing that the uh, the Jason Bateman character is just fascinating. <laughs> and he, my, it's like I said, it's been five or six years since I've seen this. My thought was always that it's well, it is Jennifer Garner's best individual performance in a movie. I always thought she stole the show, dude. Jason Bateman took that character and ran with it, dude. He's he's the Ethan Embry of this movie. He, he is the Ethan Embry of this movie. He's not wrong though. I mean, he's he's uh, well, okay, he's flawed. <laughs> he's flawed, but I mean, ultimately, his sin is like I don't want kids and i'm not happy with this marriage well it's not where that that's not where it stops though he was he would have had sex with juno if if she hadn't rejected you don't him. know that I, I, I think that dance was not going anywhere good um jennifer garner's very good we kind of had our like little side conversations during the movie where she's always she's jennifer garner she i mean she's playing i mean i i've seen the whole run of alias which i think is probably the best jennifer garner showcase as far as what her limitations are <laughs> really like 13 going on 30 i haven't seen it okay because i'm racing big so yeah, i don't need to see exactly the female version the of big thing, yeah. uh, she does those uh credit card commercials <laughs> but that was after that was by then i'm just saying she's perky in them <laughs> She, if she we're talking about like the best out of the body of work you know? <laughs> yeah okay, fair enough uh but I think that having seen her, I guess, at her most winsome, at her most charming in certain like episodes of Alias, this was probably at the time when I saw it, I'm like, this is her most uh unlikable character that's in her play. Because even though she's in the right, she's just She's very neurotic. Right. She's shrill. She's type just, A, you know. Yeah, she's just nagging and and, and you well, kind of feel bad for Bateman. I mean, I agree with you that again, he's really like she's like she's just a flawed person like Bateman and mm-hmm. but she has, you know, the establishment of like did they lose a baby? Um, did they, you know, things that are there is some actual weight behind the character, you yeah. know. So but, Yeah, and then we get to the to the scene at the mall. Like I said, I wanted the movie to be about them. Yeah. They definitely have a more their relationship and the characters feel a lot more they feel closer to real life than Juno and everybody else in her life. They actually feel like real people. But then you get to the scene in the mall, and I told you the first time I saw the movie, I was like, This is just too weird when she's just like talking to the belly and you know, she's like, Hello baby and Hi baby, talk to me, it, baby. It's just it it was out of her league. But but the payoff that the baby actually kicks 
I think that maybe talking to the baby, not so good. But with the, her reaction to the kick, when she lights up and she smiles. And, and it's the Kaiser Soze moment. Yeah, it, that one's good. And yeah. it, it makes it worth it. And I think the first time you're watching the movie, because you know that's you don't know that that's coming, yeah. then it's really, you can't really judge it well. It doesn't like play very well. But once you know that's coming, it's it, it's really good. It's a, it's a really good scene for her. And, I, uh, I saw shades of uh, her reaction when Bullseye threw the nightstick <laughs> through her dad. <laughs> Only now she's dressed like a normal person. Yeah. And they do, you know, for all the complexities of Bateman's character too, and I was kind of piecing it together, the reason, you know, that uh, Polly gets rewarded in the end is because there's the, there's the scene where he gets completely dressed down and emasculated, whereas uh, Mark just gets completely emasculated and then <laughs> gone. Yes. Just out. I, I, to presumably a really sweet loft. Right. I mean, you could... You should have shown him just with a case of beer and, like, bottles watching. Like, like he's happy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, like, his happy ending for you had to include, like, him watching UFC. <laughs> or just or, uh, the football game. I don't know. He's uh, watching uh, uh, old VHS tapes of his band when they were on tour. <laughs> this, is, this is when we were in Brazil right here. Um, I I told you when we were watching the movie, I mentioned, I was like, this is my favorite scene in the movie. Because your favorite scene is the... Uh, J.K. Simmons giving terrible advice, which now that we're in real talk, it's not terrible advice. I, I, I rethought that when I was watching it, though, because I remembered that being my favorite scene. But then, like as the movie was going on, to me, the best scene in the entire film watching it tonight with y'all was right after he tells Juno he's leaving. And then she runs up crying right as Jennifer Garner's getting home. And it's that three-part scene of them, like, all kind of their characters' conflict all coming together. Because it's a scene that like they all three have to bring it to the table for it to work, and it works really well. Yeah, uh, that's that's really good. But my favorite scene, and it's the it's the Michael Sarah clip, like the Oscar clip, and I I might have even quoted it before on the show, is when Juno tells him, "You're just so cool, and you're not even trying," and he he laughs and he's like, "I'm actually trying really hard." You know, Blake, I was thinking, and I'm sorry, I was such a huge bitch to you. You don't deserve it. It's okay, you know. It's okay. And also, um, I think I'm in love with you. Can you mean as friends? No. I mean, for real. Because you're like the coolest person I've ever met, and, and you don't even have to try, you know? I try really hard, actually. You're like naturally smart. You're not like everyone else. You don't stare at my stomach all the time. You look at my face, and every time I see you, the baby starts kicking super hard. Does? It's such a good line, and I think it explains everything in his character, everything that we complain about. Uh, his character in this movie the fact that I'll he tell just you looks what he so didn't aloof. try hard to do <laughs> <laughs> take the slightest bit of responsibility for the child no, that he fathered but see i actually because we're seeing him from juno's point of view through the entire movie and and she's just keeping him at arm's length so we don't really know what's going on we're with him this entire movie through diablo cody's point of view that is true <laughs> But I, I think that she keeps him at arm's length, so we never really get into his head. We never really get a glimpse into what's going on with him, other than when we see him staring at the yearbook, 
And then in this one scene where he really... And he's holding the painting. Well, yeah, with the yearbook. Yeah, when you're like, he he likes her. (laughs) But that... I guess that was the idea of like, yeah, it's supposed to show he cares about her. It's like supposed to be romantic, but yeah, it's it, weird. It comes across really weird. Yeah, because they're just kind of balled up. And I mean, and they're also like, we, we know, like, they're like fucking Haynes' little girl pain. Okay, yeah. How, not... how is it that you're more grossed out by this than by Bateman, like <laughs> slow dancing with Juno? I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's not creepy. I'm saying they're both like, like I, the way the movie was written, I'm surprised there wasn't a scene with Bateman with <laughs> staring out the window, <laughs> using him as a stress relief. Um, so as far as the writing goes, you know, there, we can be here till the cows come home, as they say about debating it. One thing I think we could all universally agree upon: it's a, a very aesthetically pleasing movie, very well shot. More, I was surprised more so than before. Uh, Jason Reitman's obviously, I don't want to call him a visionary director because Zack Snyder has that term. <laughs> it's a very good looking film. I, I has some nice shots. I, I really like, I caught like the end of this movie a few months ago. And, and so that, this was fresh in my mind, but the, uh, that final shot of, uh, Michael Sarah and Ellen Page lie on the bed. Mm-hmm. That's not the final shot, but it's like, you know, it ends that little, in the because, hospital. In the hospital. Uh, which I really think like drives home the message of, yeah, this was not fun. You know, you might have thought this was fun, but the fact that she's just crying and he's just holding her and the whole thing really had a psychological effect on her. That whole scene's <laughs> good too. And then you have the fucking looper moment where Allison Janney sees uh, Jennifer Garner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what did you say when we were watching it? Or was it you? Like, you said, uh, uh, Days of Future Past. Was yeah, it, it was <laughs> fucking Ian McKellen and Michael Fassbender. Like, um, now with that being said, there are some really obnoxious fucking shots in the movie. Like Reed and I alluded to while watching it. You pointed out, I should say, the she's always walking against the crowd. She's unique. She's like, she's special when she's fully pregoed out and they're partying like the Red Sea, like Moses, and then the scene where they're just fucking eating in the trophy case. Um, there is some I'll, I'll give it the credit for like the scene where they're parting where she's like visibly pregnant because i mean we all knew the one chick who got pregnant in high school and yeah yeah you know yeah um i'll give it that much credit <laughs> color scheme everything like that it, it's it looks good yeah and and uh again i just want to go back to the whole like she's so unique and she's so different and it really works against the movie but i think that on an early stage of production, it has to have worked for it. Like e- even going back to stuff like the the hamburger phone that now we make fun of it, but as I think should. that it was sent as a fucking consolary <laughs> prize with fucking screeners. Right, but I think that maybe if it was just a hamburger phone, we didn't worry, we wouldn't worry about it. But because it's the hamburger, the hamburger phone, and the way she talks, and just like all the quirky stuff that's the all throughout the movie all these things that we're talking about the movie makes a point to draw attention to it right it's, it's like that that quote said it's like it's trying too hard yeah. but if you tried a little less hard then we wouldn't worry about it. i wouldn't have a problem with it with the hamburger phone i would be like oh that's cool that's what i want from a movie i want something different i don't want her to just answer a phone it tells me something about her personality that she has a hamburger phone and that she's very aware of it i but thought it was interesting that, that she rented suspiria once <laughs> 
Because, I mean, she could have rented any movie, but she was like, I'm going to be different, and I'm going to go down the horror aisle. The, see, that I have more of a problem with, the, the whole Suspiria, her being a horror buff. It, from... Okay, here's the problem, is like all the all the music references and all the movie references are not anything it's not b-sides it's not deep tracks exactly like the movie tries to pitch it like it's she's saying things that are like super niche yeah and it's just like no like if talk you talk about chris Gaines, <laughs> <laughs> talk about fucking zombie holocaust like say something that like you know only that's like you said if she name dropped like tom savini it would have been like oh okay you know that's you know it's not like that's going super deep, but it's something where you would have to have a little bit. It just, it really, it like, it seemed, it's a hot topic movie. Yeah. It's like she, I don't know, it's like, what are your favorite bands? Like Iggy Pop and the Stooges. They're fucking terrible for one thing. And it's like, oh, because people know who Iggy Pop is. Yeah. Rancid, the Ramones. Yeah. Like the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Like the whole thing about the Melvins. Yeah. 77 being, you know, yeah, that's when the Ramones dropped their first album, and like you're not going to tell anyone more than me how important the Ramones were. But yeah, it's like we don't have that, time that, for that. You know, it's... <laughs> that scene when she's talking music with with Bateman, I that's probably the most obnoxious scene for me in the movie because those are the kind of people that I just tune out and I walk away. But here, I was stuck with them in the movie. That's you know when she's just like name dropping bands and he's name dropping bands. I was like, shut the fuck up, just you know. <laughs> Get to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I'm, fuck already. One <laughs> yes. step away from talking about fucking I spit on your grave and all this shit about <laughs> horror movies. So, um, now with that being said, the uh, Jennifer Garner, like we talked about the first part has that line of your shirt is stupid. And I thought that was like a cool, like she's finally like coming out of her telling what's what. Um, it's good. I think we can all agree upon. There's a better movie trapped in it that did not come of it. I mean, maybe my, I'm happy with the way it is. I think it's a flawed, but I—I I mean, obviously, I like it more than both of you. I—I uh, I think it's flawed, but I kind of wouldn't change anything about it because then it just wouldn't be Juno anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it'd be a better movie, <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be Juno. It would lose its its Juno ness. I, maybe I—I would—I would replace Rain Wilson at the beginning with somebody that can probably be a little more charming with that kind of dialogue. I wouldn't have had that dialogue at all. But but don't you think that there's maybe there's somebody that can pull that off? Charlton Heston, <laughs> an Sam. old guy like an old. No, they just do the gag from Wayne's World. Like this isn't working. Can we get a better actor in here? I was gonna say Sam Worthington. Uh, there you go. The charismatic enigma. Oh no, uh, who's uh, Captain Boomerang? Um, Jai Courtney. Yeah, Jai Courtney. Jesus, um, it is what it is. There's things in there that you know. Uh, we could all wish were extrapolated upon. I think my biggest point of contention with it is it's a fun movie for what it is, but it's nowhere near what its legacy would lead you to believe it is. It's just kind of this quirky movie that's there. Like I said already, you cannot mention it in the same breath as No Country for Old Men or There Will Be Blood. So to say that it was put alongside those to represent what was the best of that year is just fucking ridiculous. And that was back in the... The old days when there were only five nominees. That was the hand day, man. Yeah. I mean, I have to reluctantly agree. I kind of like that this really quirky, extremely flawed, but, you know, movie made it to the top five. Um, I had, I had my issues with a lot of hamburger films. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> you get the actors branch. They're the heaviest. <laughs> They're all for that quirky shit. I want a hamburger phone. For the Big Mac phones. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, at the time, gears. What were the other four? Oh, at, okay. So atonement, we can like scrape off the the list. Atonement. Okay, uh, Michael Clayton. Never seen Atonement actually. Atonement's all right. It's Michael okay. Clayton's a great movie. Michael Clayton's good. Uh, it's it's not there will be blood or no country right. for old men. I was about to say I would put Michael Clayton on the same level in the sense of like a good movie that I wouldn't say oh it's top five of that year. Uh, there will be blood. It's obviously like a masterpiece in uh, No Country for Old Men. I've come to love it as a masterpiece, but I remember the first time I lo- uh, I watched it. I hated the ending. I thought that... Did you guys not have that reaction? I thought that was a common reaction. I thought it was... I think it's brilliant. I, I think it's brilliant, too. But the first time I watched it, in Granite, I missed the opening monologue. Because, you know, I started the movie. I came downstairs <laughs> to watch it because I was screening it. And uh, well, and I missed the opening. fault. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> you need to get somebody else to start the movie for you. <laughs> but... Uh, the switch from uh, I, th- I threw two trailers on it to make sure I had time to get a soda and get to the yeah well you know I was I was, I was short on time. Who would have thought that the first like five minutes were gonna be that? It's not a five minute run. Maybe the, the first Kellen two minutes. Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I was about yeah. to say, just go into Pulp Fiction ten minutes late and see if the movie pans out the way. Like... Uh, no, that that big switcheroo when you suddenly lose your protagonist, basically, and. Uh, in the country for old men, I remember it. It really threw me for a loop. I did not enjoy it, uh, but then I mean, I've grown to like it. I did think it was a risky choice where Juno is gunned down with twenty minutes to go in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's like finally, Leaker's going to take action. <laughs> and he he comes and hugs her. Yeah, I, I, and that's the thing. I think when it comes down to it, I I think fondly of this movie mostly because when I think of it, I don't think of the terrible Rain Wilson scene or just like the really bad dialogue that shows up or whatever. I think of, uh, of, of Michael Sarah saying, you know, I try really hard to be cool. (laughs) And I think of him hugging her at the end after everything is over. And I think of like the good performances and the, the scene with the, I, the sonogram tech, you know, I like what it does. I don't know. I don't know if it's, it's intention, but I like where it puts you because you're right. The tech is right. But at the same time, you kind of root for the mom because just it's kind of cool to see somebody standing up to somebody that's being rude. I, I just like that, you, you know, you can have that scene and then be like, discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't think that scene at the end of the hospital bed is earned. I think it I is. I don't think that relationship. But that's because you don't you don't buy Michael Sarah's like. Anything I don't the buy their relationship. There's not enough of it in the movie. And again, it's the whole thing of he is barely involved in any of this, aside from the obvious. <laughs> well, and- also, a big thing is the labor is two minutes. Like, they build up to this moment, and then it's one scene of her saying she's in pain, and the baby's born. Well, but thank God for that, because yeah. I would need another, like... I'm not <laughs> asking for a fucking, you know, knocked up, where it's like this... 20 minute segment of the film or everything but you know i know with knocked up they said like the idea was that it was like we want to make it as uncomfortable and as like painful as it actually is you know within a movie whereas this you know may, i don't know maybe they cut out a little bit more but uh that didn't bother me it's like i said i just don't think that emotional payoff is earned I, wait I, for the criterion i guess i think it is even if the michael Sarah part doesn't work for you i think it works on her side because you have been with her the entire movie 
and she's been pretty flippant about having this kid and giving it away. Mm-hmm. And then to actually finally see her cry about it, you've seen her cry in their car before, but it could be it was about Michael uh, about Jason Bateman. I was gonna say Michael <laughs> Bluth, uh, who from Arrested, Arrested Development. Development. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, he's Mark. Yeah, My Mark. Notes say Mark the monster over and over again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, to finally see her break down about the pregnancy and the birth and the kid, I I bought it. It wasn't as quirky and as fun as she had hoped. Right. Yeah. I guess it's a movie that came around. By the time it already came around for myself and Reed, I can say it was a bit too late in the game. Yeah. Um, bringing this all through, about two years later, uh, Jason Reitman would make a film. I hope we'd all agree is vastly superior. I and I love Up in the Air. Up in Great the Air movie. was my favorite movie of 2009. Yeah, I I don't know if it was my favorite movie that year, but I definitely have it on my you know top whatever. And kind of looking over here, I will say Juno. It was the last year that we'll ever have of the Oscars where it was so widely ranging because the next year was Slumdog, Benjamin Button, Frost Nixon, Milk, and the Reader. But that was the year The Dark Knight came out that changed everything, and that. The following year, they went to we the... We have to be more wide yeah. open, and that's uh, the next year. Up and District 9. District 9. For Best Picture. and So, Juno, it, it will have that little niche in history. Now, 94%, I think, is obviously a bit much. This is a movie that's weird because it's so... It's trying to appeal to just such a certain bracket that it's hard to say what percentage or great i'd give it as far as what it wants to be and achieves i'd give it like a b it just doesn't work for me right but you would be a red tomato it's not (laughs) it's not a poorly made film that's the thing right but that's what i'm saying in this like extremely flawed uh uh system that run tomatoes has you would be a red tomato give it a reluctant thumbs up right maybe would you give it a reluctant thumbs up thumbs down what would you uh i mean forgot that thumbs down i just i there's a more interesting movie hidden in it. Uh, but I just, I don't think any of the emotional payoffs at the end are earned and it just doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm a red tomato. I'm a full grown, mature red tomato. Uh, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the whole point of our podcast is that that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, so I'll give it a solid four out of five stars. Oh, oh, huh. Hey, you're a B minus or whatever. That's kind of like that's like a three star. Yeah, if you're yeah, B I mean, I minus. Can fucking grade a paper that like I could disagree <laughs> with the opinion completely, but still give it a B. <laughs> if I'm giving a star rating, it's about two. And a half. Oh, speaking of that, okay. So here, probably my biggest problem with the movie, actually, and uh, I don't think I really thought it through until this time watching it is that it really doesn't explain why she doesn't get an abortion. That's fingernails. Yeah, that's bullshit. That's you know that 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 to me that's the biggest thing that they don't get through in the screenplay or in the movie at all. Especially <laughs> considering they don't tackle it with a pro-life or pro-choice stance. It's just like right. she just doesn't do it. It just it's just kind of like well we need her to be pregnant so that there's a movie. So we need to just explain why she didn't get an abortion. What was that John Wayne movie with the train? Stagecoach. Yeah. <laughs> well, there wouldn't be a movie then. <laughs> right. Why did she get an abortion? Because then you wouldn't have a movie. Because <laughs> then there wouldn't be Juno. Yeah. All right. Bringing it all home now. Um, Reed, we do have you on the podcast this week. We're, we're really happy we got you on here. I've been trying to find for a while an excuse to get you on here. Perfect movie. Uh, yeah. I, 
I said I chose this with him in mind because I knew he'd bring something to the table. Uh, while you're here, though, um, I know you're heavily invested in the Other Worlds Film Festival. I know we're a ways away from doing that, but if you could just kind of tell us where we can find information about that, basically what y'all do, what uh, just kind of synopsis on Other Worlds. Thank you for that segue. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, Other Worlds Austin Sci-Fi Film Festival. This will be our fourth year. We are December 7th through 11th, I believe, this year. Uh, second Thursday through Sunday of the month. Um, yeah, com. We're on uh, Twitter on, I think, Other Worlds ATX, something. Yeah, if you search Other Worlds, you'll find us. Both of you guys have attended the festival, so you can attest. Are you guys going to do Flix Brewhouse again this year? Do you know? Yeah. That, that was a good venue. Yeah. yeah so. All of it. So come on out, people who are listening to this. We're live, right? <laughs> people in Austin <laughs> that listen to this. Yeah. Well, that's good that we're, we're getting this plug in like way in advance. Because last time, I think it was last year that I plugged it, but it was like after the festival had happened. Was like, I went to this really well, cool thing. Well, a lot of good that did us. <laughs> <laughs> Julio, anything to plug this week? Uh you know, uh, I'm going to say that uh, The Leftovers started its third season, and it's just as good as you would expect. What's the... I've never seen an episode, and you don't have to explain it here, but like uh, Larry from Perfect Strangers is like playing himself yes. on the show? It, it's kind of a throwaway joke, so or I can Mark, I can spoil it. Without, yeah, Marklin okay. Baker plays himself. It's not that... So, I, I was actually... That's why I was going to... Uh, plug the leftovers because they pulled off something that was amazing which was make turn margling baker from a running joke into a tragic figure in one episode because the whole idea of the leftovers is that two percent of the world's population vanished one day and uh, some people think it's a rapture but it's not as if like only the good people disappear it's just random people disappear for no reason and the show's not really interested in finding out what happened to those people is more interesting in finding out what happened to the people that stayed behind and how they cope with the fact that, you know, your brother disappeared or your mm-hmm. husband disappeared or whatever. Um, so in season one, they established that the four members of the core cast of Perfect Strangers, so Balky, Larry, and the two girls, mm-hmm. they vanished, right? And then in season two, they reveal that Marlene Baker, Larry, did not disappear. He just faked his disappearance. <laughs> but the other three did. The other three did. So he he was just like embarrassed that he was not he was not part of the people that, that vanished. <laughs> In season three, they bring him back and he's actually running some sort of like you don't know yet if it's a scam or if it's a, a something legit, but he's just behind this outfit. That that's trying to figure out what happened to the people that disappeared. And uh so they bring him in for an episode, the second episode, and uh he is just, he's playing a dramatic role. I've never seen him. I've seen him in one movie that was also comedy, but he's playing a dramatic role. And he's just this man that's obviously haunted by the fact that he did not vanish with the rest of his castmates. <laughs> and he has a really heavy that's scene. Amazing. It's so good. Like they shoot him in close ups and with the, the shadows and everything. It's amazing. And uh, to add to it, the, the opening credits for the leftovers in that episode, they play the, the, it's a regular images. The images are the regular opening credits, but the song is a song from Perfect Strangers. It's the opening theme. The theme. Yeah. And, uh, you know, standing tall on the edge of my dreams or yeah. whatever it was. Uh, it was just really good the way they did it. And, and the show is great anyway. But yeah, what they did with Marlene Baker this last episode was amazing. Sounds like, unlike some other people, Mark Lynn Baker's taken responsibility for <laughs> things in his life to bring it full circle because we got off on that tangent. 
All right, as always, festive years, their album, Don't Let Me Use You. Um, our last stand, Summer 99, music we use on here. We always appreciate that. You have the usual plugs. Um, well, that was it. Just write to us at, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. We have to mention the email address. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you love Juno or hate Juno, uh, we are the contrarians at gmail.com. Right. Yeah. Tell us, how do you feel? Do you feel like Michael Sarah earned that hug at the end with the tears? Do you want to see the Mark and Vanessa spinoff? The prequel. Let us know. Prequel slash sequel. It'll be like, this is 40, but with interesting people. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right, you're wrong. Reed, we appreciate you being here this week. If we ever, if y'all ever do the Dick Tracy episode, I'll be back. Absolutely. <laughs> I can bring the Blu-ray. <laughs> Uh, we thank you guys for listening. Uh, once, you know, don't. <laughs> Take care. Get in the car, I'll grab the keys. Let's go make this summer one that's full of memories. You won't regret it. I know a place outside of town. I think you'll really love it at night.